But anyways, it's good to see you. I'm glad that you are here. Uh, I hope that you've been enjoying, that you had a good weekend. That uh, I'm so glad, though, that God brought you here to Stonington Baptist Church this morning. Uh, we're going to press forward in our series going through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we are nearing the end. We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 this morning. Hopefully, uh, Lord willing, we are going to go all the way through chapter 9. Next week, we'll go through chapter 10. And then on the last weekend of November, we'll finish out our series by looking at chapters 11 and 12. Uh, right before we get into the December weeks and looking at Advent and things like that. I will confess to you also this, that <laughs> I warned you a couple of weeks ago, perhaps you remember, I don't know, uh, that these chapters that we're into right now, or that we're in the heart of, are some of the most difficult chapters to sort of try and derive a sermon from, only because uh, Solomon is using all of the wisdom that he has to sort of grasp these eternal matters. And so he's pulling out sort of all the stops, <laughs> He's letting everything, and he's uh, letting everything go, laying everything on the line, so to speak. And uh, last week, as we were looking at uh, different ways that we try to uh, project into the future and where we find peace, and here again, we 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 come to this chapter. And as I was reflecting on it, the one thing that I kept coming back to is uh, what Solomon began his search for. If you go back to chapter one, I think it's verse thirteen. Uh, yeah, chapter 1, verse 13, Solomon is introducing what he's about to launch into as we've studied throughout these chapters. He says in verse 12, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail. Hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith? Basically what he's saying there. I, by the wisdom that God has given to me, have done all that I can to search out what life means. What has staying power? What sticks? What's eternal? In a life that is filled with vanity, with frustration. He's searching for meaning. Perhaps this is a question that resonates with you. What do I mean? What is my purpose? Why am I here? These are things that I think Solomon is exploring. How do I find meaning amongst things that are so transient, that go away so fast you can't even hold on to them? How do I find meaning, something that is truly meaningful in a life that is so quick? That's what I think Solomon is exploring in this chapter. It's really one of the bigger themes throughout the book, but I think especially in this chapter. And as I was thinking about this, I was reflecting on this. Actually, back in 2015, uh, 2015 actually saw one of the most interesting fights take place in the sport of ultimate fighting. I, I, personally, I'll have to confess to you, I don't like ultimate fighting. It just doesn't grab me. It doesn't allure me. But maybe that's your thing, and you always watch it. You get the pay-per-view and all that stuff. Good on you. I, I just don't get into it. But anyways, I do know about this one. Because if you are a fan, you might remember this fight back in 2015 and the hype surrounding it is UFC 193. The fight between Holly Holm, the underdog, and Ronda Rousey, the ultra heavyweight favorite. Now, this was a fight that was very, there was a lot to do about it. <laughs> there was a lot of uh, hype surrounding this fight. 
The stakes, though, I would say were much higher than any sort of trophy. I don't know what you win. If you win a belt in UFC, don't, don't get on to me. Um, I don't know. Whatever you win, the trophy, the medal, the ribbon uh, for UFC. Um, that, there was much more than that that was on the line, though, for this fight. And let me explain why. Because, you see, at this time, Ronda Rousey was a true, like, bona fide celebrity. She was uh, so well-known, even just beyond the world and realm of ultimate fighting. She came into this fight with an undefeated record in the octagon. And it wasn't just undefeated record. It wasn't just like she won. She was knocking her opponents out with really vicious efficiency. Really quick fights. It wasn't just a lot of KOs. It was just complete sort of devastation of her opponents. And she was easily the most recognizable face in the world in the sport of mixed martial arts. She was an untouchable fighter, it seemed. She had all of this going for her. And so you can kind of get the sense of what's on the line. For Ronda Rousey, it was more than just a UFC title on the line that hung in the balance, so to speak. It was her entire persona. Everything was going into this. She had a lot on the line. Her whole reputation, her identity, the place and the source for her meaning. That's what was on the line in this fight. And if you don't believe me, just listen to what she said when she lost. Oh, spoiler alert, by the way, she lost. (laughs) The favorite, the one who should have won, so to speak, so the experts said, lost in actually an embarrassing fashion. She lasted two rounds, and actually the second round was less than a minute. It was called the upset of the year. The heavyweight favorite lost, and this outcome was shocking. No one could believe that this could have happened, especially Ronda Rousey herself. And in an interview, listen to what she says. This is sometime after she lost. She says this. I was literally sitting there and thinking about killing myself. And that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? And no one cares about me anymore without this. Her meaning was taken away. All that she had put her hopes and dreams in for what had provided her identity and purpose, everything. That's what she lost. She didn't just lose a fight. (laughs) She lost everything. So So much so to the point where she was thinking about taking her own life. In a small way, I I think this is a sampling. Of our society's obsession with meaning. What do I mean? How do I find what I truly and ultimately mean in this life? Finding something as Solomon has been examining. Finding something that really fills us. Something that lasts. And I think this is exactly what Solomon is is doing here. We know we've, we've said this in a couple other places that we are people of this earth. God is in heaven. We are on this earth. He says that I think in, in chapter 2 or chapter 3. We can't, we can't change that. We exist under the sun. Solomon has been, he's using that phrase over and over again to reiterate the fact that we are on this planet. We are creatures of the earth. But as Solomon has been pinpointing and showing us that as long as we decide and as long as we determine that we are going to find our ultimate meaning among things under the sun, we will only live a life of vanity. It will be a life of vexation of spirit, as he says, a life of frustration. 
If you find the ultimate purpose for who you are in things that are relegated to under the sun existence. It will be a life of frustration. This, I think, is what Ecclesiastes is all about. As Solomon is giving us firsthand personal testimony to all of the ways in which he tried and failed to find this meaning on his own. He's saying, I tried all that. I did all that. I explored every avenue you could possibly explore. I went to the nth degree and I went to the lowest depth of what that avenue offered. And I found it to be vanity. I found it to be frustrating. As we noticed last week, we try to uh, find some sense of meaning by asserting control. We predict things. We try to assert control over the future. And as we noted last week, that's a really worthless kind of project to sort of endeavor to uh, engage in because life is always out of our control. Which if we're putting our hopes and dreams in, in that sort of avenue, in that bucket of meaning, so to speak, it'll always be out of our reach. It'll always be beyond us. And I think this, as Solomon has everywhere tried to reiterate, this is the most frustrating frustration of all. <laughs> that the things that we are conditioned to believe will give us meaning and purpose and value and hope and all those sorts of things, they don't. Money. Money doesn't, it doesn't give us all those things that we want. Pleasure doesn't, accomplishment doesn't, possessions don't, materialism doesn't, entertainment doesn't. He's looked at all those different ways that we naturally think that will give me what I ultimately want. That will be the ultimate meaning of who I am. And we put all of our hopes and dreams in these things and hoping to find this ultimate sense of meaning. But we all will eventually come to realize that those things cannot fill us because they weren't designed to. They cannot deliver on what they promise. Because they weren't designed to. They weren't created to. And I think this is the precise lesson that Rhonda Rousey learned. In a very uh, hard way. All of her successes. All of her accomplishments. Her resume. As a fighter was ripped away. And as that was, so was the source of her meaning. Because it was relegated to something under the sun. It was relegated to something here. And perhaps, hopefully, you and I won't have to learn that lesson by getting in a ring and fighting someone. But we will still learn this lesson. That if we, it, 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 you can be sure of this, that if we are, what we're relying on to give us ultimate meaning for our lives is something under the sun, it will fail. It will fail. It will crumble. It will turn to dust. It will eventually be exposed for just the crummy God replacement that it is. That's what those things are. As long as you're making that thing out there ultimate. You're making it a replacement of who God is. And what God has, has always longed for us to see him as. And this I think is what Solomon is doing here in this chapter. As he continues on this search for meaning under the sun. And I think what he's going to do here is that despite all of these frustrating realities that we've noticed. That there, there is meaning to be found in this life. Just not by us or just not in us. And I think he does that in this chapter through three lessons. I want to go through them quickly. I will try at least. The first lesson comes through verses 1 through 6. 
It's a lesson that he has touched on in several other places. He's touched on this topic in chapters 1 and 3 and 5 and most notably in chapter 7 at the beginning. It's just this fact. Death is unavoidable. And he he reiterates it again here in this chapter. You can kind of see that this topic was one that was really pressing on Solomon's mind. It was something that was something he couldn't shake or avoid. Notice he says, uh, for all this I considered in my heart even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked and to the good and to the clean and to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth and to him that sacrificeth not. As is the good, so is the sinner and he that sweareth as he that feareth an oath. This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. You can see what he's, he's pressing in here. There's one event that comes to everyone. Everyone has to face it. Everyone has to own up to it. And they can't avoid it. One day they will stop breathing. One day their lungs will no longer have air and their heart will stop and they will die. This is what he's talking about. He's talking to this, the physical fact of death is what he's referring to here. And no one has the power to prevent that from coming. And he's, he's, he's noticing, he's explicitly saying just how unbiased and seemingly unfair this physical fact of death is. As he noticed in verse 2, that it doesn't take into consideration whether you're righteous or unrighteous, whether you're clean or unclean, whether you're religious or irreligious. I'm not trying to say that it doesn't matter, that that's not going to affect where you will go, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the physical fact that we will all one day eventually stop breathing. That doesn't take into consideration whether you are faithful at church or not. And this, as he says, is an evil. (laughs) This is frustrating. This is a reality that is so (laughs) annoying. He can't get around it. This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun. This grim fact of death. That word evil there. It's really a word that has, is suggestive of this idea of a malignant sore that's on your skin that just won't go away. I, I can't help but read those words and think about where that malignant sore came from. It came from Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve, our first parents, rebelled and pretended that they were like gods. And what had happened? The curse of death came upon all men. This malignant sore appeared on this beautiful creation that God made and it just won't go away. And why is that? Because man pretended and thought that he could be like God and he could make meaning on his own terms. I don't need to listen. I don't need to obey. I don't need to have any sense of authority over me. I am like God. I can be as smart as him. I can be as sovereign as him. I can be as authoritative as him. And I can make meaning for myself. I don't know if Adam and Eve said that. Or thought that. But that's what their actions showed. (laughs) 
That they didn't need someone else telling them who they were and what they meant. They could find that for themselves. They could make that for themselves. And here the dreadful point that Solomon returns to as he's noticing this, this evil in this life is the fact that men see this and they don't even take it to heart. Notice he says, uh, um, this is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Everyone knows this, yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil and madness is in their heart while they live. They don't take it to consideration. They don't take it to heart that this one event is coming rather than learning from it as we learned a couple weeks ago out of Ecclesiastes 7. Rather than learning what it means to sit in the house of mourning. Rather, he would rather fill his heart with madness. Sit in the house of mirth and just pretend that that day is not coming. He'd rather drown out the noise of this dreadful reality with madness. And where does it get him? Nowhere. Because as Solomon says, and after that, they still have to die. They still go to the dead. It doesn't do anything for their souls. So why spend your life among, in trying to find meaning among things that cannot give you what you are after? Why, why pretend that these things that do not last, these things that will fade just like you will, can actually help you in the day of your death? You can see, and put in those sort of terms, this reasoning of the sons of men is more than just a little foolish. And that's why he, he comes up with this incredible illustration in verse 4. Where he articulates that spending your life for meaning under the sun only eventually leads you to become a dead lion. Notice he says, for to him that is joined to all the living there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. It's a really interesting picture. We have to know that when they were talking about dogs, they weren't thinking of your cute little fluffy thing that you love and you treat like a third or fourth or fifth kid. Dogs in this day were like scavengers. They were reviled. They were vermin of the streets. They weren't uh, treasured pets. Lions, on the other hand, as they have existed throughout all of time, they are like the kings of the jungle. They are symbols of strength and, and, and nobility and kingliness. As you can see what he's comparing It's better for you to be alive and almost reviled than it is for you to be dead but have nobility. Because what good is a lion's strength and regalness and nobility if it is dead? It doesn't really mean anything then. It's just a carcass. It's just a dead lion. And we could put put this in your terms. Put this in terms that are a little bit perhaps easier for us to resonate with. What good is your six-figure bank account if you are six feet under the ground? What good do all your successes do if the only trophy that people will actually cherish of you when you are gone is the tombstone over your head? This is what he's saying. And it's harsh. It's a stark reality. But he's getting us to see that where we're putting the weight of our meaning is imbalanced when it comes to the physical fact that one day we will no longer have breath in our lungs. And these things cannot do anything to prevent that or stop that or help that. Therefore he says, 
It's better to be a, a living dog than a dead lion because with the living there is hope. And all of which I take to mean this, that your life matters. You might not think that these little things matter, but these little things matter a lot. So that's just why he says, for the living know that they shall die. But the dead know not anything, neither have they any more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. They don't have an opportunity for any of those things. They are no longer alive. The point is all this. The unavoidable certainty of death makes finding our meaning in things that will die with us all the more absurd. Death is unavoidable. Number two, jump down to verse 11. This other lesson that he gives here is sort of jumping off of that because he says death is unavoidable. Number two in verse 11 down through the end of the chapter, we have the second lesson. Life is unpredictable. Uh, this is another theme that he's, he's, he's looked at before. Another theme that he has examined in other places. That life is outside of our control. It's outside of our grasp. If you actually go to verse 1, where he, he reiterates that in this, that last phrase. And the, uh, for all this I considered in my heart even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works, they are in the hand of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. No man can know. What lies ahead of them? Because all of their works, all of their days, all of their times, it is in God's hands alone. We have zero ability to know what future days will be filled with. You see, the wisdom of this world asserts that as long as you put your head down, as long as you put your mind to it, your dreams will come true. As long as you work harder than everyone else, that you, that's where you can find meaning. As long as you're the hardest working person, the, the strongest athlete, the best and fastest runner, all of these sorts of things. Whatever dream you want to pursue, as long as you are the hardest working person in that field, that's where your meaning can be found. It goes back to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago with this idea of karma. That we are the ones that are in control over our fate. And Solomon kind of bursts the bubble on that in verse 11. Because he says, And I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill. But time and chance happeneth to them all. For man also knoweth not his time. As the fishes that are taken in an evil net, as, and as the birds that are caught in the snare, so are so are the sons of men snared in an evil time when it falleth suddenly upon them. Life doesn't happen, happen according to our wills. Have you ever put a lot of time and effort in something and it doesn't go according to plan? <laughs> it doesn't turn out the way that you thought it would. It doesn't give you the return that you thought that for sure, as long as I'm working hard, right, I can get a return on this investment that I'm making. Life doesn't operate according to that formula. According to our will, according to our effort, according to our reason, or according to our timeline. 
Actually, as Solomon is here saying, it, it, just looking from the outside in, actually sometimes life can seem totally random. As if time and chance are ruling everything. As if there's really no seeming order to events. There's no seeming person in control. And actually, yes, fate is ruling the universe. It can feel like that. Because I put a lot of work into that. And it didn't turn out the way I thought. So random. He illustrates this, though. In a really intriguing parable, he doubles down on this whole point that how you think things are going to turn out is not necessarily how the outcomes are going to turn out. Which can make life seem really unpredictable. Notice verse 13. He tells this story. This wisdom have I seen also under the sun and it seemed great unto me. There once was a little city. And few men within it. And there came a great king against it. And besieged it. And built great bulwarks against it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man. And he by his wisdom delivered the city. And they all celebrated the wise man. And had a great parade. And made sure to always remember the wise man. Oh wait. No it says yet no man remembered that same poor man. Then I said wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of the wise men are heard in quiet, more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroyeth much good. What an interesting story. This little parable of this little city that is being besieged by this great king and his vast army. And they're surrounded by all these great bulwarks, as he says. And the outlook for the city doesn't look hopeful. Everyone's probably gloomy, rushing around, trying to figure out what they're going to do. They are surely going to die. You know, in that hopelessness, as Solomon relates here, a poor wise man devises this cunning plan to deliver the city from its attackers. And in his, in his ingenuity and in his wisdom, he saves this city. You would think he would be remembered as a hero. He'd have a statue in the middle of the square. So everyone can remember that this guy, he saved us. He's the one who rescued us when we were surrounded and we were without hope. We were surely defeated. And everyone's going to have a parade once a year to remember the great wisdom of this man. And that's not at all what happens. He's forgotten. No one remembers what he did. No one remembers his ingenuity, his skill, his cunning, the craftiness with which he delivered the city uh, uh, from its enemies. This makes it seem, makes it seem that fate surely rules us. (laughs) Life is too unpredictable. Life is given to chance. So we might as well, just like the the sons of men in verse 3, we might as well give ourselves to madness. Why even try, bother being wise? Why even bother trying to understand all this? Why even bother with all this? Because what Solomon says, wisdom is better than strength. Wisdom is, uh, excuse me, nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. There, the words of the wise men are heard in quiet more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. Wisdom is better. 
You know, when he says that the words of the wise men are heard and quiet more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools, you just get this picture of the wise man faithfully doing what he knows is right to do. While the kings and all of his councilmen are surrounding him with all this clamor and cacophony of sounds and loudness and yelling. And that's sort of what's remembered. More than what this wise man delivered. But you know who remembers this wise man's words? God does. God knows this wise man's words. God sees what he did. God sees what he uh, uh, eventually allowed to happen in this city. He sees the actions of this poor wise man, even when no one else did, even when no one else remembered him. Your life matters. And we are not ruled by fate. We are not ruled by happenstance. We are ruled by a father. And his name is the Lord, the Savior, Jehovah God. He rules our days. He is the one that provides all that we're looking for. The point is this. that The unpredictability of life makes finding our meaning in things that will be forgotten a very foolish investment. Things under the sun, they're going to fade. Things under the sun, they're going to be forgotten. They're going to rust away. Placing our meaning in those things... Is foolish. Actually what Solomon goes back to. Is the third lesson. Life is unpredictable. Death is unavoidable. Meaning is simple. And I don't mean that to sound cursory or anything like that. Where should we find our meaning? Where should we look for the meaning that we crave? Where, is, where can we find this if it's not in all these things? Because we've been conditioned to believe that it is in these things. What can we rely on? What can we trust in to give us meaning and purpose and value and identity? Really good questions. That I think Solomon answers in verse 7 down through verse 10 of this chapter. Notice. Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works. Let thy garments be always white, let thy head lack no ointment. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of vanity which he hath given thee under the sun. That is thy portion in this life. And in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do. Do it with thy might. For there is no work. Nor device. Nor knowledge. Nor wisdom. In the grave. Whither thou goest. Do you see it? The meaning of life under the sun. Is not something that we forge for ourselves. Not something that we can fabricate. Not something that we can create or manufacture. Meaning isn't found in something that we can accomplish. Or achieve or acquire. Or any of those things. If we create meaning for ourselves. It's counterfeit. It's fake. It's flimsy. As fickle and frail as the things that we've looked at under the sun. Ronda Rousey learned that. Her meaning was as fragile as one loss. 
Solomon learned this through all of these different avenues that he pursued. He learned the hard way that life isn't found in these things. Meaning can be found in these things because they die. They fizzle. And here's the lesson. That when we have explored all of these other avenues, all of these other possibilities, all of these other things that promise ultimate meaning, promise meaning that lasts, and we find them lacking, we find them just as empty as Solomon has here proven, that to me is when the message of grace speaks to us the loudest and clearest. And what is the message of grace? It's that all that we long for is given to us. All that we crave, it's a gift. We don't have to hunt high and low to find it. We don't have to search in all these different ways and hoping that this is going to be what it is. Jesus says, here I am. I am your meaning. I am your gift. Here I am. Meaning is a gift that is given to us by the Christ, the God of all things, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Savior. Life, with all of these things that we've looked at, the problems, the the confusion, the frustrations, all of these things, life is a gift. And you can hear Solomon here saying it, enjoy it, cherish it, because this is what God has given us. We don't need to be fretting over what future days might hold. We don't need to be fighting over things that don't ultimately matter. Because what you have in front of you right here, right now, that's your meaning. You find meaning in enjoying these things that God has given to you. Here's all that I am. Christ is your meaning, which means you can enjoy the little things. You can enjoy the little matters. I'll give you an example of this. (laughs) You can probably relate. With one of your children, with one of mine, sometimes she likes to do things in her own will and way. And I know, I know that there's a better way to do that. (laughs) I know for sure I can help you tie your shoe better or at least put it on better. (laughs) But she is very determined to put it on herself. And I think that's really a silly illustration, but in that moment... (laughs) I'm not taking what that moment means for what it is. It's my daughter learning how to put on her shoe and enjoying the fact that she is actually learning a little bit of independence at three years old. Instead, I'm the dad who has to get to this certain thing. So what this means doesn't matter. What this thing matters to me more because this thing is more important than what is right in front of me. If this is where my meaning is, we're going to miss this. We're going to miss the little moments. Miss the little matters that matter. And guess what? Those little matters, that's God's grace to you. Why do you think he says, enjoy the life that he has given to you. Eat and drink and live joyfully. This is not the sort of eating and drinking and living joyfully that resists looking at death for what it is. It actually thinks about it so much that it knows that all of these things matters. As he says in verse 5, the living, they know that they shall die. And they are the ones who are truly living. 
because they know that these things don't give them meaning. (laughs) You can enjoy a steak a lot more when you know that it's not giving you meaning, but it's a gift from God. (laughs) It's a gift that he's given you. Why? Because he's your meaning. He's the one that provides it. He's the one that died for it. He's the one that established it in himself. Meaning. What we truly mean, who we truly are, is found in God himself. And he has given himself to us. He is our meaning. There's a, there's a passage, if you'll permit me. I couldn't, I kept reading it, and I kept rereading it. And I couldn't get away from it. So I figured I just got to share it. Because it comes from C.S. Lewis and he's talking about this very thing. It comes from one of his lectures in his book, Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis writes this, which I think perfectly sums up what we're talking about. He says, when Satan put into the heads of our ancestors, or excuse me, what Satan put into the heads of our ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God and apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history, which is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God, which will make him happy. The reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine, a car is made to run on gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on, and there is no other. That is why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. We think there is. We fool ourselves that there is. But we will be always on a wild goose chase if we're searching for meaning in things under the sun. Because our meaning is found And the one who is above the sun. Who has given himself to us. That's where meaning is found. In the one. Who created all of this. Who spoke and everything came into being. Who as that that song says. In the vapor of his breath. The planets were formed. And yet that one. Who did all of that. Came and died on a tree he created. In order that you and I would find all that we long for in him. That you and I would find that all of our sins and guilt and shame have been washed away. By the nails that we drove into his side. By the cross that we deserved. This is why the, the wonderful invitation of Matthew 11 always stands. That we, who are wearying ourselves, searching for meaning in things that will die and fade. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
rest to stop thinking that these things will fill you. That your ultimate meaning is found in these things that will ultimately fail you. Rest to know that it's in me. Grace to see that I'm your meaning. This is God's message to us. This is how we find meaning. Let us pray.